This is Abby, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. My name's Abby. I'm a planner at Multi Studio in Kansas City. And back on the program with me today is Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. Hello, Chuck. Welcome back. Hey, Abby Kinney, star of the Strong Towns National Gathering. It was awesome. <laughs> that was really fun. Yeah. Yeah, it was really cool. I loved it. I thought this is perfect. I tried to come over and chat with you a couple of times, but there were always people there. There was always stuff like going down and uh, I didn't make it, but I saw you were having a good time and I've been able to listen to a little bit of what you recorded and yeah, that was fun. It was a lot of fun. I got to meet many people who were in attendance and just a really broad variety of people. It was a lot of fun just to hear their stories and how they even came to the conversation. Um, yeah, a lot of fun. I hope you continue to do that every year with CNU. Boy, um, we've had a lot of requests and a lot of really positive feedback. And I think from our board standpoint and, and everything, we're going to have to look at the numbers and, and if it all makes sense, I think it does. It would be fun to do it again. It'd be fun to continue to do this. The feedback that we've gotten is that there's a lot of energy for people just getting together and being in a room together. And I remember that from the early days of, of CNU too, is like, we're all here doing something very new and exciting in our places. And it's really powerful to be able to just converse with each other about it. So yeah, that's my, my hope is we do it again. Absolutely. Well, that's my hope too. So fingers crossed. <laughs> well, so the article that we are covering today was published in The Guardian, written by Courtney Tenz, and it is entitled, Who Can Afford America's Perfect Neighborhood? The neighborhood that they are referencing in this article is located in Longmont, Colorado, called Prospect. It's an award-winning new town development that has been basically developing since the 1990s. It was designed by DPZ, which is a firm that is really well known for uh, designing these kinds of neighborhoods. They designed Seaside, Florida, among many, many other places. The yeah. author, yeah, that they and they were at CNU. Doing this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the author calls this new town uh, development basically they describe it as the embodiment of the American dream. It's got beautiful tree-lined streets. It's very child-friendly. It's filled with every amenity you could ever want a neighborhood to have, cafes, outdoor concerts, parks, workout places. But it's also become very, very expensive, especially in recent years. Longmont has become one of the fastest growing cities in the U.S., which I actually didn't know before I read this article. Uh, it's right outside of Boulder, which kind of makes sense why it would be growing so quickly. And homes in particular in the Prospect neighborhood are incredibly rare to find and very expensive. The author provides this critique of the neighborhood's outcomes talking about lack of economic and racial diversity, 
the proliferation of Airbnbs and also loopholes in the city's affordable housing policy that is allowing the final development phase of this neighborhood to buy out of the required 12% of units that were meant to be affordable. So it sounds like there's some politics with housing happening that's intersecting with the uh, master plan of of this community. I think in a sense, this article is touching on the I think the critiques of Newtown development that we are very familiar with and maybe we've talked about on this show before um, that maybe we can touch on because I think the the overall topic is bigger than just this one prospect neighborhood. It's kind of asking who Newtowns are actually livable for. So as I was reading this, I was thinking about the street one over from mine that just got rebuilt a couple of weeks ago this summer. And so I, I live on 4th Street in Brainerd, Minnesota, 4th Street North. 3rd Street is where the hospital is. So between me and the hospital, there's some buildings, but a block over, there's a huge parking lot, and the hospital's surrounded by parking lots and, and what have you. As they redid this street in front of the hospital, in the block right in front of the hospital, they put bull boats in the, uh, at the intersections They tightened it up. They narrowed it up. Traffic drives a lot slower through there than it did before. I think the theory earlier had been we're going to have really wide streets around the hospital so that the ambulances can like fly through the neighborhood and get to the hospital very quickly. It's had the opposite effect, right? I mean, like I'm sure the ambulances go fine, but they tend to not go very fast for the most part. What happens is that everybody else speeds really quickly. So as they redid the street, they fixed some of the things in like one area. And then on the rest of the street, they added street trees and they did some things that made the street a little bit nicer, but they didn't put the bulb outs in. And the street is still kind of like excessively wide through here. So I'm reading this article that you sent me. And what occurred to me is the same thing that always occurs to me when I get deep into like, how do you execute a new urbanist type of development? And what I've recognized is that these communities are built with the same exact ingredients. Like Longmont, you know, this, this place that they're saying is the perfect city and nobody can afford to live there. And it's, it literally has the same ingredients that your neighborhood has, that my neighborhood has, that all these places have. You just have someone who actually, A, knows what they're doing, and B, cares. I was going to say gives a, you know, swear word. (laughs) This is a PG show, so. Family-friendly podcast. You actually have someone who cares who's out taking these ingredients and arranging them in a way that produces something beautiful. I love to bake, and I bake Christmas cookies every year. Gingerbread is my favorite. I have experimented for years and years with different ways of assembling a gingerbread cookie and having just the right amount of ginger and the right amount of cinnamon and the right amount of different types of molasses and have it sit in a certain place to kind of age a little bit before you actually make roll it out and make them into cookies. And I've gotten it to where it's, it's, it's exquisite. Like I love it. I think I make very good gingerbread. I've eaten other people's gingerbread and I'm like, "Mm, yeah, I see where you're going, but it's just not as good. And then I have eaten gingerbread from people who like really, really know what they're doing. Not hacks like me who do this once a year, but people who like 
I'm, I'm an exquisite baker. Like I really know what I'm doing and it is like next level. We have created a planning profession and a town building profession that is like the horrible gingerbread cookie, just like throw ingredients together in a bowl and like slide it out. And if we could just get to the point where you had someone who had a little bit of pride in their craft and actually wanted to build places that responded to beauty, the look and feel of it, how people uh, felt within it, we could, with the same ingredients, create such spectacular cities that it would be unrecognizable to people today. And I'm this article made me sad because it was almost like a lament of why do these people get nice things and the rest of us don't? And I'm like, because someone actually took the time to assemble these ingredients in a way that produced that. I don't know. Okay. Abby. Well, that, that leads me to the question of who is actually leading the, let's say the physical design outcomes of these neighborhoods, because it's, not likely to be the actual like planning practitioners in the public sector of the city that are maybe leading this vision to build a new town or to do maybe they are but but typically it is the developer that is wanting to do has a vision and they partner with you know DPZ or a design firm to actually create a master plan and with alongside the city but but really there's somebody who is the visionary who's leading these kinds of development projects and, and yeah i think the the thing and it's mentioned in this article that i think the quote was that they said city planners have missed the point of prospect by not building any more neighborhoods like that and the message should have been we need to build more of these we need to make a city where live work becomes just a way of life. And I think that's exactly right that, but, but I, it's not just about the, the municipal city planners that like are working within the city, because I think typically municipal city planners are more reactive to the development environment. It, it's really the people who are building subdivisions and building neighborhoods who are, laying out the streets and and of course uh, if there could be zoning regulations and subdivision regulations that help to play defense on bad neighborhood building right but like we just have a lot of poor building professionals that are building neighborhoods uh-huh yes this is where i came up with the pejorative zoner as opposed to planner right because look at what we have done post-World War II, we have created this profession, the, the city planner, and their chief calling is to go out and lay out and design and anticipate where the next phase of growth is going to happen. And their job is essentially to, in a Henry Ford assembly line kind of fashion, uh, set up the mechanisms by which we can build the next iteration of the same thing. And sure, Maybe we can put decorative lights in it. Maybe we can have a little bit different boulevard. Maybe we can even put bull boats in it. Wouldn't that be cheery? But the idea is that we would go out and say, here's where the infrastructure is going to go. Here's what the zoning classifications will be. Here's where this is. And, and you're setting it up so that the private sector can then come in 
and lay down the products that are securitizable, the products that are financeable in, in order so that, you know, they can be sold off and bundled up together and, and securitized. And then you get this product that we deliver over and over again at scale. If we, if we go to Seaside as kind of the antithesis of that, what you had at Seaside was a developer who said, I want to build a, a beautiful place and I, I want to make a lot of money doing it. I mean, I, let, let's not pretend this is an altruistic thing. But if people are making money building horrible, ugly neighborhoods, they should be able to make money building beautiful, amazing neighborhoods. So I, I don't want to say that just because you're building a beautiful neighborhood, it should be totally altruistic. And I, I don't think that's fair. This is the bizarre thing, is that we can build units that are cheaper in many ways and sell for higher price points, have far more profitability by doing great urban design. When I say I am sad by this article, I'm really talking about the early days of my time in the engineering profession where I started to recognize that what being an engineer was in the modern sense was not adding value to projects. It, it, it was not taking a project where, you know, you were going to spend a million dollars and and get a return of two or three million, and I could, through my brilliance of engineering, make that a four or five million dollar return, and you know, justify my fee twenty times over by doing it. No, my my role as an engineer was just to take received wisdom in terms of manuals and text tell the developer, tell the city what they had to do to conform to liability requirements, and then go out and build these like mindless places that added no real value to the people who lived in them, the people who existed in them, or the people who, uh, you know, would ultimately maintain them. That, that, that was very depressing because it took the talent and the skill and the ability that I think young engineers have when they go to school or young planners have when they go to school, like I want to be creative. And it takes that and it just squashes it down to here is the way you will be a cog in this, in this machine. And I mean, I wrote in my, I wrote in my second book in confessions that there's a lot of engineers who uh, like push back against this. It's like a, trying to break a, a wild horse, right? Like they buck and they're like, I won't do this. But to stay in the profession, you have to be broken. You have to have that taken out of you. And in a sense, a willingness to conform to the, the, the structures that we've set up to create this growth machine. And that's why these, these neighborhoods that are different and distinct that do these things are so amazingly expensive and so bizarre in terms of like their difference and their unreality. I've had people say, I hate this place because it doesn't feel real. And I look at it almost like a Stockholm syndrome thing. Like what looks real is a place that's really crappy and really bad and like not very comfortable to be in. And this place that is the opposite of that, even though it didn't cost any more to build, maybe even cost less to build, um, feels weird to us because someone actually took the time to say, what would this be like? Let, let me give you one more analogy. You've gone to Target or wherever and bought a shirt or a pair of pants. And 
you know, they come and, and, and you can get clothes cheaply there. I'm not saying you, like I have done this too. So. No, I'm a target person. So yeah, like I get, and you get it and you know, you, you, you come home and you put it on and you wear it and it's okay. But after like four or five times through the wash, it starts to get stretched and it doesn't really bounce back as well. And it doesn't fit as well. And over time it, it kind of like wears down and becomes less a part of your wardrobe very quickly. But you've probably also had the experience where you've bought something really nice and spent some money on something really nice. And you'll find that in 10 years, it's still in your rotation and it's still part of your your wardrobe and you still put it on and you still wear it and it feels comfortable. You could say like, well, that's because it costs more and you spent more. But the reality is, is that it, it was designed to do something different. It was designed to be a piece of clothing that fit better reacted better. There was more like thought put into it. It's not like the threads cost more. It's not like the, the, you know, the stuff cost more. It was just that the care taken to assemble it probably costs more. And that's, I think a lot of what we see in cities is that, I mean, I look out my window here at the office at the street, the city just had one of those drive slow blinking billboards put up out here because everybody who drives by here drives by super fast, even though it's a residential neighborhood. It has like a 44 foot wide street. I mean, insane, like drag strip, like land an airplane on it kind of street in the middle of a residential neighborhood. Um, we could have spent half the price building and rebuilding and reconstructing and maintaining the street over the years and had everything about the street be way better, way nicer, feel way better for people there, perform better. And so what if it took you a second and a half to get to the end of the block, uh, you know, driving, the second and a half extra is not going to impact anything, but it will have a huge impact on the quality of life. Well, and to the point about the value of these and, and uh, I guess unaffordability of these new town developments, the street has a huge impact on the value of homes. And I, I, I know that that's been something that's been debated um, where I live, uh, you know, doing these street projects and traffic calming and bike lanes, it's going to drive up property uh, values and, in areas. And it, to me, that's quite sad because if every street was a great street, then maybe that wouldn't be the case. But we're just so used to having poor streets that once you design something that is actually a, a livable public space, it impacts property values, or at least is that that's the that's the theory and that the, the extent to which that's true may be different depending on where you are. Is, is that a pushback against like, I don't want to pay higher property tax if my values go up? Yeah, pretty much. Right. Which is such a bizarre, bizarre thing. Let me challenge our listeners to do something. I'm not going to say that this is universal, but I feel like it's near universal. I've traveled to enough cities and I've been in enough neighborhoods and I've looked at enough places. In your community, go to the neighborhood that you consider like the most affluent, the the wealthiest, the the best place to be. And I'm I'm talking about the traditional neighborhood. So don't don't go out to the far suburb on the edge of town where you know people have decamped to their own uh, you know gated whatever. Go in your urban part of your city 
and find the neighborhood that generally is like the best neighborhood and observe the size, just the width of the street. And then go to the neighborhood that is the poorest neighborhood in the community, the, the part of town that like no one, you don't want to live here if you don't, if you have a choice. This is the poorest town. And look at the width, just the width. You don't have to look at sidewalks and like the condition or anything. Just look at the pavement width. And what what I have seen over and over again is that in the wealthier parts of town, the streets are very narrow and they're tight and they lead to slower traffic. And let me just take the next step. They spend a lot less on asphalt, bituminous, maintenance, you know, grading, everything else, um, stormwater drainage and all this, than the poor neighborhoods where the streets are much, much wider. I, I've theorized on why this is. And you know, I, I don't think it's cause and effect like the narrow streets create the great housing. I think what it is, is that the affluent people push back on the bad street design and the poor neighborhoods, people are more disenfranchised. They are less uh, influential. And in a sense, the standard engineering approach can roll over them without them being able to push back very much. But if you look at it from a strong town's lens and look at it of what you're spending and what you're getting. The poor neighborhoods are having way more spent on their street in these examples, way, way more spent on their street, and they're getting far less. If we actually went to our poorer neighborhoods where we could use, you know, the people who live there could use some property value appreciation, right? And get the land values going up, get people there having more equity, having more ownership, give them more capital. Um, this is how you do it. We could actually spend a lot less money and get a lot more back for people who are in these neighborhoods. And, and, and as a side effect, <laughs> they would be much better places to live too. I mean, they'd be much more, they'd be safer. Uh, they would be aesthetically more you know, beautiful. They would be healthier. There's a whole lot of other side effects besides just the financial, but the financial should be compelling in its own right. Yeah, they definitely should be compelling. And there's a question of, is there a value capture strategy so that you can ensure that the money is going to be directed back into neighborhoods as they appreciate over time? I, I do want to kind of speak to the flip side of this wide versus narrow street phenomenon, because I think in, in urban neighborhoods or you know legacy neighborhoods, whatever we want to call it, that's definitely the case. I mean, I what you were just talking about, I can think of several neighborhoods that fall under both of those categories. And I'm sure people listening can think of neighborhoods in their own place that fall under those categories. But on the flip side, when you look at new subdivision development, I feel like it's the opposite because you have these new neighborhoods with houses that are priced very high and the public realm is just an afterthought. It's, I mean, it is the conventional uh, engineering approach, but for whatever reason, so that, bizarre. there's no it? pushback yeah. against that. And people, I, I don't want to speak for them, like they're okay with that, but it's just kind of expected in a new subdivision that that's, and I think when we're, you know, new town development is essentially new subdivision it's it's just it's the antithesis of the conventional subdivision development model what i think is interesting about 
the conventional model is that you know they're doing large lots they're building very poor public streets in terms of the design and livability and vibe uh the whole environment of it that doesn't age very well and and then it's unproductive but the new town model of new subdivision development is you have smaller lots it's highly productive it's priced higher because people actually want to be in a nice place uh, where you can walk to things. It's a crazy, crazy idea, I know. Uh, and it's just, it, it occurs to me that just the public realm has so much inherent value in it that if you take the time to think through that, you don't, you could have a lot more houses that you're actually selling as a developer and it, the value is much longer lasting and it'll probably appraise better. I wonder if anybody's ever studied that, but it's just, it's interesting that just conventional new development, new subdivision development has these these very conventional streets, right? And right. and there's no pushback. I'd like to say the sad reality, which is that bad money. It's just a sad up. podcast. Is that what this right. is today? I have a way to approach this though that, that okay. I think would help. But let me give you this first. <laughs> the the question is if you have developer A who can spend a dollar and make a dollar fifteen, and, and developer B who can spend a dollar and make a dollar thirty, why wouldn't you just be developer B and make a dollar thirty every time? And the reality is, is because it you can make money easily being developer A. You can be dumb. You can not know what you're doing. You cannot take much care. And to be developer B takes a lot of effort and energy and thought, and very few people today have the skills to do that. I mean, in my mind, like popped in Carlton Landing, and you know the people who are developing Carlton Landing south of you. It's fascinating because they're in this like long term project, and so how things line up and the beauty of it and how it fits together is a very important part of it. But if you're just doing one little subdivision in one place and there's very little risk for you to go in, and as long as you can execute on the assembly line strategy, you can make 15% time and time and time again, why would you put the extra effort in to you know get that extra margin when you could just move on and like do the next thing quicker and quicker and quicker? I actually think what we see is bad money crowding out good because of the way we've made it so easy to do the bad. Can I give you what I think the answer, part of the answer is here? Like I'm, I'm thinking of people listening to this going, well, how do we, what do we do differently? And let me speak directly to like a mayor or city council member, you know, who's sitting there going, all right, I, I see this problem. I'm with you. Like, I want to do something different. What is that? Steve Mozan who I, you know, I don't know if you, were you able to chat with him at all at CNU? Uh, not this time, no. Okay. Delightful guy. He works now today as the town architect. And I want to say it's for Tuscaloosa. It's for a city in Alabama. He's the town architect there. I, I feel like the town architect model is a model that we can bring back and have it again, like pay for itself many, many times over. So instead of 
giving something to your planner and then having the fire chief comment on it and having the engineer comment on it and the maintenance worker comment on it. And, oh, we can't put bulb outs there because of, uh, you know, it can't snow plow it as quickly. And we can't do this because we can't drive fire trucks through at 45 miles an hour. You, you, instead of having that like siloed thing where nobody is really responsible for the end product and everyone comments on their little silo and objective, you actually run your projects your development projects, your zoning projects, your road design projects, all of this through a town architect. Um, and they, in a sense, are the person who coordinates all these things. And their goal, the way you judge them, is how much value are they adding to these projects? And if you spend $100,000 on, on a town architect and they work for a decade in your community, that's a million dollars you spent on a town architect they will earn you in tax revenue 20 times, 50 times, 100 times, 1,000 times what you're paying them if they're good and they do things well. So that's something that I thought a little bit about, just thinking about smaller cities where they don't have a lot of staff capacity. And oftentimes, like even if you have good subdivision regulations and zoning regulations that you can play defense on. Sometimes people don't even really read those. They just propose a project that, and they, because I build subdivisions and here's what I build and that's, that's that. But what if, what if cities actually could provide like, like a, it's like a city service and you can help design the subdivisions and rather than you reacting to them, like they can bring what they need. I have this land. I need to have this many houses, I think. And somebody within a city can like a town architect basically, but maybe they don't even need to be an architect. It's like a town urban designer. That would be a better use of urban planners yes. and designers really <laughs> rather yes. than just reacting but, and then looking at regulations to actually help think through and um and, and accommodate the needs of the, the actual development financially but but hold them to the design standards of the streets and and those types of things and and help them think through ways that they can develop different types of housing or there's just more collaboration that could happen if there was somebody internally that can help design projects. Yes. Or, or, I, I or like we need the, massive reform in the home building um, world. You don't hold your breath on that one. Yeah. I know. <laughs> Here's what I think we need to, to change though. Most cities, especially small cities, as you talk about, have such a growth mentality understand what I'm saying, not a wealth building mentality. It's not about uh, how do we make investments of a dollar that pay back a dollar, 20, a dollar, 30, a dollar, 40. That's wealth building. It's more growth. How do we do transactions? How do we get another job? How do we get another house? How do we get another? And it's all about transactions that the emphasis is on grow, 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 not build wealth and not make like good investments. And so a city, if they were going to do this, would have to be willing to say no to developments that took them in the wrong direction, that actually, you know, were negative returning. And quite frankly, that is almost all development that cities do today. So you would have to be willing to empower someone and back them up in a sense, say, yes, we're going to say no to that. 
but then also be open to the idea that what was brought forth that you could say yes to would look somewhat different than what you're building today. It would mean putting that house in between the two houses that are out on the street now or converting that one house into a duplex or a triplex. And you couldn't have like the NIMBY empowerment machine that, that you know, went along with the growth machine that is giving you the results you have today. So for leadership that wants to do this, you would have to embrace both sides of that development equation. Like we're going to say yes to things that are going to build our wealth and we'll look, they're going to be compatible with the neighborhood. They're going to turn out really well because we got a town architect or a town planner, whoever's going to come in and their job is going to be to, to make these investments work out. You're also going to say no to the stuff that, that doesn't do that. And so that's going to mean making a lot of developers upset because they're used to a certain approach. Yeah. But, but also at the end of the day, if you have a pathway for getting to yes, and that is a city service. It's a public service that like, hey, we're not going to do that for you, but we we can work with you to try to figure out another thing that, that you can do with that property that, that follows the standards and it's good design and is productive for the city and makes sense. That I think would be a tremendous public service because it wouldn't be just about saying no, no, no to everything and then frustrating the developers and they don't work with you anymore. Um, there, there needs to be ways of get, to get to yes and also help to think a little bit more creatively about what we're all doing. Yeah. Ed- Edward Erford on our staff is essentially used to do this and I'm going to oversimplify it um, just to, to explain it here. But he, he worked in a place where like the average approval time was like 18 months. And a developer or someone building on a, just a single site would come in and say, all right, I'm going to submit my application and I can go through door A, which means I've got 18 months of different hearings and different meetings and different things on average. Or I can go to door B, which is Edward and his team. And Edward and his team are going to take this, redesign it, or help work with me as the developer to meet my objectives, but in a design that works well with the neighborhood and and meets the the you know overall wealth building objective and then edward and his team as insiders will go and get the approvals i need and get me building within 30 to 60 days all of a sudden that became one of those uh huge incentives for developers to want to play along particularly when you know, you start with like, what are your objectives? Well, I need four units. I need, you know, this and this and this. And like, okay, let's accommodate that. You might have to give on this setback or this thing that you think you need. You might have to put the parking in a different place. You might have to spend a little bit on uh, lighting or trees here or what have you. But like, we can we can meet your objectives and make this work. Um, they were really, really successful in that. So successful that um, they undermined the uh, kind of credibility of the other departments and in typical bureaucratic fashion, the other departments kind of ganged up on them and, and uh, got, you know, them kind of kicked out. So that's, that's the internal politics of, of government. And that that's exactly what I'm picturing by the way, but oh, totally. yeah, it's yeah. like once you get departments that yeah. gain up on you or a director mm-hmm. that doesn't like what you're doing yeah. or it, things can change quickly. The one thing that changes quickly in yes. municipalities. Cities in the military uh, format, where we have silos and hierarchies, and everybody has their responsibility. And 
people say government is inefficient. Government, local government is hyper-efficient. It's just hyper-efficient at doing something we don't want them to do over and over and over. What local government struggles to do is nuance and changing approaches and changing pattern and innovating. And if we want to get that, we actually have to have neighborhood teams that are kind of led by a generalist who can bring different people together for you know overriding objectives like building neighborhood wealth and making the place a safer place to live, a healthier place to live, a better place to live, aesthetics, beauty, um, you know, all these things go together in a way. I think, I, I feel like there's a path to get there, but this will take leadership on one hand and then, you know, kind of a different definition of what not only we're trying to accomplish, but what planners role is in a community, what an architect's role is in a community, what the engineer's role is in the community. And in many ways, that's going to be diminished from where it is now. Yeah. Well, I think but to get back to the article, moral of the story is that if we are to build better neighborhoods, then the this critique that these new town developments wouldn't be as strong because it, they're, they're only they're only so valuable because it's the best option for people who have a lot of money and want to live in a lovely family friendly neighborhood. And, and, and it's not even just new neighborhoods, urban neighborhoods, legacy neighborhoods uh, that are lovely and walkable and have nice streets experience the same, the same type of pressure. So we really just need to be building better neighborhoods. Absolutely. And, and how we get there we is a question, and but we can do yeah. it. So and it's not all It sad. is not going to cost, no, and it doesn't cost more. I mean, that, that's, I feel like if there's one takeaway that people listening is like doing good stuff does not cost more. There's no, there's no additional cost to the public to do things well, to assemble these materials, to build the gingerbread in, in like a thing does not take like specialty, this and that you can do it with the same ingredients and do it really well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, okay. Well, we'll end it there. Thank you, Chuck. Uh, before we finish today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we have been up to, anything we've been reading, watching, listening to. Uh, so Chuck, I'm going to put you on the spot. What have you been up to? I know it's been a while since I've been here. We had the national gathering. I took a week off because my daughter graduated from high school and my wife had a list of things that I needed to do before the grad party. And so I took a week off and just did work around the house. I listened to five audiobooks in a week. I just love, I put them on double speed and I just go through. Um, I listened to one twice. It was so good. The End of the World is Just the Beginning uh, by Peter Zion. Uh, the subtitle is Mapping the Collapse of Globalization. And it is one of these books that kind of affirmed a lot of my biases. So I'm going to maybe uh, just acknowledge that right away. Like it was a lot of, here's why this complex system is breaking down. Here's how this complex system is breaking down. Um, but this might be my book of the year this year. It was, really took a lot of um, things that kind of in theory come out of reading The Black Swan and Anti-Fragile and you realize that there's like these big complex systems that we're reliant on to do the things that don't make sense here. Like what is, what is propping up the entire suburban experiment? 
it is this kind of weird, complex thing out there. And Zion kind of breaks it down and says, yes, it's weird, complex. It's an anomaly. Here's how it's winding down and ending. And here's some of the ramifications of that. And in some ways, it's truly frightening. And in other ways, it's very empowering. So the end of the world is just the beginning. Peter Zion, I I highly recommend it to everybody. In fact, I bought copies for everybody on the team. (laughs) Well, I'll have to add that to my list then. And I've been actually, do you think it would read well on audio? I listened to it twice on audio. Okay. So that will be my next book that I listen to. Yes. (laughs) Because I'm looking for something. My my only frustration with audiobooks is that I can't share them. I don't think this is like breaking something. Maybe it is. I don't know. If you're like with Audible and this is going to get me mad, please don't because I consume a lot of audiobooks. I have given more people my login and password than I can count just so they can download audiobooks on my account and listen to them. That reminds me, I think you were supposed to share that with me. So <laughs> I have an audiobook library of like probably, I don't know, 500 books at this point. Um, yeah. So yeah, this one was was very good and I listened to it twice. It was so good. So. Well, I don't have anything quite as heavy to share. I have been spending a lot of time paddle boarding. So I have these uh, inflatable stand-up paddle boards that just live in my car now. And I've been going all the time. It's like the most relaxing thing. So yeah, I've been just going, going to different bodies of water around uh, the Kansas City Metro and taking them out and sometimes going with friends, sometimes just going by myself. I find it to be really relaxing. I'm getting kind of burnt, unfortunately, but that's really the, the only downside. You look great. Like you've been having some good time outside. Let me offer to you 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 might you might have known this. Minnesota is the land of ten thousand lakes. There's actually something like thirteen thousand something. In my neighborhood, you can walk any direction, and within a mile, you'll run into a body of water that you can put a kayak, a paddleboard in, and you will thoroughly enjoy it. Abby, I I think you would love living in my neighborhood. Well, I'll uh, visit your real estate office, and you can show me around. <laughs> <laughs> I will get you up Add here. Add that eventually. to your brochure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a I have a I have a real estate company and the only objective of that real estate company is Abby getting to move to Brainerd, Minnesota someday. Yes. Um well I'll make my way up there at some point. I don't know if I'm gonna move there, but I will definitely visit at some point and I will bring my paddleboard. I feel like the next time I come down, we are now mountain biking and paddleboarding, which yeah, let's I'm do in. it. I'm in. I'm in for both. Yeah. Make sure you come between the months of like May and August for paddleboarding, maybe September. As a Minnesotan, it is way too hot in Missouri in June, July, and August. <laughs> yeah, we actually had a really nice. Now that so here's the weather report. We're backloading the weather report this time, uh, but we it usually is, lead with that. It is quite. Yeah, we usually start with that. Um, <laughs> which, by the way, several people that I met at CNU mentioned our weather report. <laughs> so. <laughs> 
like people that I had well, just met, they were like, oh yeah. And they started talking about the weather, um, where they're from. And I, I was, was like, in, Dang. I was in Alberta, Canada this week and, uh, it was gorgeous. But when I, when I was there, they were having the, the smoke apocalypse here. Like, you know, when it happens in New York city, it's front page news and like, oh, orange sky. And then it's not in New York city. So it's not happening anymore, but it happened here this week. Really, really bad. And my family was sending me pictures and everything. And then I got back and it cleared up. So I, I don't know. I didn't. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's nice out today. I got to run. I'm going to a grad party. Beautiful weather for a grad party. So. Well, enjoy. Have a good weekend. I'll, uh, I'll talk you. to you later. Thanks for joining me. And thanks, everyone, listening to another episode of Upsound. Thanks, Chuck. Take care, Abby. Take care, Abby.